Okay, man, glad you made it uh, tonight. We're going to go after Romans 9 together tonight, which we've been telling you as we've been leading up to it, it's probably one of the most uh, controversial chapters in all of Scripture. And my hope is, is that some of the things that we've done together to kind of set this up uh, will make it more understandable and easier to navigate Romans chapter 9 uh, together. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we're just going to dig in and uh, see what happens. Let's pray. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we uh, we simply come to you tonight and just ask God, would you guide us? Would you uh, help us as we study your word to be able to see what you're saying clearly, to be able to respond to it with the way that we choose to live our lives. God, would you direct me, help me to stay online and to be accurate to scripture tonight, be willing to be honest about the things that I don't understand. And uh, God, would you just use uh, this time we have together? And this we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So to set ourselves up, uh, we talked a little bit last uh, week about a doctrine called Calvinism. And I want us to review that for a moment because the controversy that happens in Romans chapter 9 really revolves around that particular topic. So uh, as we... Do we have runners for the microphones tonight? Yes? Okay, we're going to use you guys real quick. So when we talked about Calvinism last week, uh, we used the acronym TULIP. And uh, the first uh, phrase was total depravity. All right, so somebody explain to me, give me a journeyman's uh, definition of total depravity. What is that? Total depravity, without looking at your notes. Does anyone remember a little bit what total depravity might be? Okay, got something right here. Man, the lights are really, really bright for me. So if they could go down just a little bit. Okay, so go ahead, total depravity, what do we think? Okay, incapable of, of comprehending God's goodness or wholeness, but probably even a little bit deeper than that. What, what am I incapable of doing when I'm totally depraved? Respond. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally incapable of response. So in other words, you know, someone could be preaching to me, talk, I, I, there's no possible way for me to respond because I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. I have, I have lost all capacity to respond to any sort of, you know, uh, God urging in my life because I'm totally, not partially depraved, I'm totally depraved. Okay? Uh, unconditional election. Who has a definition for that? God chose some people to be saved. Okay. So God chose some people to be saved. What did he choose them based on? Random. Okay, it's random. It's unconditional. There were no conditions in the selection. So God randomly chose some to be saved because, you know, all were going to hell. And so out of that, God chose some to become Christians. But the, the key of operative of this is he chose them before they chose him. Okay. So he did the, he was the active agent and chose them. The next is oof, limited. This is a really bad pen. All right. Limited atonement. So who can give us a working definition of limited atonement? 
There we go. It's only for a few. Okay, so, but what was only for a few? The atonement. Huh? Okay, yeah, so Jesus only died for, only shed his blood for a limited number of people, and that limited number of people were the ones he knew would be saved. Because God wasn't going to waste his blood shedding his blood for those who weren't actually going to become Christians, right? Because stop and think about it, if, if he shed his blood for, why would he shed his blood for everybody when he knew he was only choosing some, right? So limited atonement. And then, who has maybe a definition for irresistible grace? Once you've been chosen, you can't say no. God will get you, basically. Okay. So when God calls, when God would make that that call to you, you wouldn't be able to resist. You would have to become a Christian because God is sovereign and God chose you to be a Christian. And so, therefore, his calling would be irresistible. You might fight it, you might try, but at the end of the day, you would have to succumb because his call would be irresistible. In your life. And then the last one, we didn't talk a whole bunch about it. Wow. I look like a third grader, right? All right. I promise you, my handwriting is actually better than this, but this pen is horrible. All right. So the last one is perseverance of the saints. And again, we didn't talk a lot about that, but does anyone have a shot at what perseverance of the saints is? Anybody? Yes, no? Yep. The idea of once saved, always saved. Yeah, so it's once saved, always saved, which ironically, guys, uh, I would believe, I would hope most of us in this room would affirm that. Uh, but perseverance in the, of the saints in a Calvinistic uh, uh, thesis comes from the idea that says, since you didn't have anything to do with it on the front end, and since God did all the choosing and all the selecting, you cannot possibly unselect. You can't possibly undo it because you didn't have anything to do with doing it in the first place. And so it's a little bit different slant on perseverance of the saints. Okay, here's why I brought that up. I'm going to read through uh, Romans chapter 9. And I want you to, as we do that, to see it through the viewpoint of this system theologically. And understand why Romans chapter 9 is such a pivotal uh, chapter within that framework of theology, okay? And, and here's the deal for some of us in the room, you're going, well, Lenya, I don't know that I care, and, you know, I, I may not be a Calvinist. And I, it, if you're going to be a good student of the Word, you have got to be able to accurately articulate not only what you believe, but be able to understand what others believe and why they believe it. So that when you end up in a discussion with them, you have the opportunity to show them scriptures and to have an intelligent discussion about scripture. Okay, so, you know, you and I, at the end of the day, need to be able to do that with people that think they can lose their salvation. You and I need to be able to do that with people who think you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. You and I need to be familiar with what they think and then familiar with the word of God so that we can have good, intelligent discussions as we go through it. So here we go. It's Romans chapter nine. And again, I'm going to ask you to kind of see it through the grid of this theological framework. And and then you'll go, oh, I get it. I get why chapter nine is a big deal. For them. So here we go. I'll read it to you and point out a few things and then we'll discuss. It's uh, Romans chapter 9 starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoptions to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all that were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appropriate time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the time by their father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. So coming from this framework, they'd say, well, look right there you see an absolutely clear picture of God doing the choosing. And the choosing had nothing to do with anything that either Esau or Jacob had done, but God sovereignly made that choice. That's exactly, they would say, what God is describing here. Before they'd done anything good or bad, God made a choice as to which one was going to have the lineage of the children of Israel. He was elect. All right, now verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And they would say again, all right, look, I mean, that's saying right there, you know, God, God can decide to be merciful and save some, and God can decide to be unmerciful and not save others. God can do that because he's God. Uh, verse 16, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. See, it's it's not something that you decide or desire, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So he says, you know, here's Pharaoh. God took, brought the plagues. Remember, and he even says in Exodus, and God hardened his heart. So here's a perfect example of somebody that God did not choose and actually used him, used him in his stubbornness and rebellion to show his own mercy. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath, prepare for destruction? So he says, look, look, look. How in the world, I mean, just because God decided not to choose you or chose you but didn't choose others, how would you bring any claim against God? Doesn't he have the right to do what he wants to do? Doesn't the potter have the ability to take the same lump of clay and make a really, really fancy vessel that's going to sit on display in the house and the other one becomes a cooking pot? And the cooking pot doesn't say to the potter, why did you make me a cooking pot? Because the potter is in ultimate control. The potter's the boss. Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and to make his power know, bore with great patience the object of wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So right there. The objects of God's mercy, he prepared in advance that they would be the objects of his mercy. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left his us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the weight of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so, as you read the passage, you see, I think, all through that passage, that there are points in the passage that those who would ascribe to a more Calvinistic view would say, how much more clear do you want God to be about this choosing thing? And about the idea that God, because he's sovereign, can have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy, and he can choose not to have mercy on people he doesn't want to have mercy on. Could Paul be any more straightforward with this conversation for you? And how do you explain chapter 9 if you don't hold to a Calvinistic view of salvation? And this chapter has been argued and argued and argued and argued for 400 years. And we're going to get through it tonight. Okay? So, uh, let, let me see if I can take us through and let, let me see if I can do that with a little bit of clarity. All right. If we remember, as we've been uh, talking up until now... Remember, over and over again, we kept saying, you, you need to understand what uh, Paul has been presenting. And in chapters 1 through 5, does anyone remember what Paul was setting up in the point he was getting us to? Does anyone remember? What is it? We all need to be saved. And what did he explain to us in chapter 5? Not in chapter 5 yet. Remember, there was... The first Adam, 
who led us all to sin. And there was the second Adam, Jesus, who led us all to life. Salvation happened in chapter 5. Remember that? All the chapters before that were, you need to be saved. Chapter 4 was, how do you get saved by faith? And chapter 5 was, then let's get saved. Okay? Starting in chapter 6, the direction of the conversation changed. And what did Paul begin to talk about starting in chapter 6? Sanctification. So the entire conversation now became, now that you're a Christian, how do you live this Christian life? How do you go forward? Remember, and Paul had this whole conversation, man, there's things I know I ought to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, and it just shows that the old nature is still at work in me, but I'm doing my best to put to death the old way of... Remember that whole conversation for us? Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 are all chapters on sanctification. Okay, so watch this. If you believe that chapter 9 is a conversation about salvation then you believe that all of the sudden, in the middle of a sanctification talk, Paul shifts gears without giving us any warning, retreats all the way back and says, oh, there's something I forgot to tell you about salvation. I need to fill in a blank for you. Which I'm just going to say is maybe possible, but not highly probable. I don't believe that Paul has shifted a gear here. I believe that's illogical to his train of thought. As we've gone so far in the book of Romans, Paul over and over again has made a point, and every time he makes a point, it's as if he stops because he knows that somebody in the room is going to have a problem with the point. Who were the people in the room that were always going to struggle with what Paul was saying? The Jews. Because, think about this, the book of Romans is written to Romans who are Gentiles, but in the room there are also Jews. Because the church in Rome is mixed. So as Paul is writing and as Paul makes a point, he says, okay, so let me, let me, let me take you this far in our conversation. He knows that at a certain point, the Jews are going to be going, oh, whoa, 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 Paul, whoa, you're, whoa, you're getting way, way, way off track. And so then Paul, over and over again, stops talking corporately and begins to have a side conversation with the Jews to go, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you how this works now. Let me help you understand because things are shifting So if you remember, as we've had the conversation going over and over again, Paul has done this multiple times. Remember, as we began Romans, Paul said, hey, look, 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 all the heathen need God. And the Jews went, and then he said, all the moral Gentiles, all the good Gentiles, they still need God. And the Jews went, yeah, yeah, you're so right. And then remember, he turned to the Jews and said, wait, 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 before you clap. The Jews need God too, because you've been counting on the law to get you to heaven and you haven't been keeping the law. Remember that conversation? And then uh, Paul went on just a little bit further uh, as he was talking and he got to chapter three and he says to them, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I know you think you're being left behind and I know you think it's unfair that these Gentiles are getting in, but you realize you had all sorts of advantage. You had, you had the prophets. God gave you the law so you had the direct commandments of God available to you. You had all sorts of benefits. 
So before you cry foul, you need to remember how good you've had it. Then you get to chapter 4, and Paul says, salvation is by faith. Remember? And that was just that was just mind-blowing to the Jews. So remember, he had to stop at the end of chapter 4 and say, whoa, 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 whoa. How did Abraham get to heaven? By faith, he believed God. Remember that conversation? And then he says, but what about your great King David? It'd be like saying, what about Abraham Lincoln? How did David get to heaven? By faith, David pleased God. So guys, it's always been faith. It's never been the law. And all I'm saying, guys, think about this. Over and over and over again, as Paul makes a point, he then stops to turn to his greatest critics and says, oh, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you how this works. Okay, you follow the thought so far? Nod your heads because you'll make me feel better. Yeah, Lynn, we, we get it. Okay, all right, good. Chapter 9 is Paul turning to the Jews again. Because at this moment, remember chapter 8, he said, God works all things for his purposes. And now we're going to include Gentiles. So what we're saying is the purposes of God are now going to come through Gentiles too. And the Jew says, no, 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 we're the people of God. How can he be concluding Gentiles in his plans? And his? I mean, they can be back seat, they can sit in the back of the bus, but they can't be in the bus. They can't be part of this. And Paul in chapter 9 turns to the Jew to say, no, God has decided to include the Gentiles in his plans now and in his purposes on earth. So start reading chapter 9 again with me, because you'll see that chapter 9 was written exclusively to Jews. Okay, here we go. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed. I wish I could go to hell. That's what he's saying. I wish that I could go to hell and be cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he starts off by saying, you just need to hear this, guys. If I could figure out a way to get all of Israel to accept Jesus, I'd be willing to go to hell so that they would all acknowledge and accept Jesus. Now, guys, does that phrase, does that statement mean anything to Gentiles? If anything, it'd cause Gentiles to go, dude, really? I mean, those people have rejected Jesus. Those people have been giving you a hard time the whole time. They're the ones who have been beating you up and throwing you out of the synagogues. And you're telling us you still love those people like that? Who is Paul trying to address? The Jews. He's trying to say, guys, no, no, no. I know we've been arguing. I know, I know, I know this Jesus thing is new to you. But guys, I'm just telling you. I'm telling you this because I love you. How many, how many parents, how many times have you had to look at your child and go, okay, look, the only reason I'm spanking you is because I love you. Right? And do the kids ever believe it? No. But it was what you were doing, Right? And Paul, and Paul is simply in this thing saying, guys, guys, no, no, I know we've been arguing. I know we've been disagreeing. I, 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 I know. I know I've been upsetting your apple cart. But you need to know the only reason I've been doing that is because I love you guys. And I need you to get to the truth. So you realize the chapter begins with Paul turning his full attention to his own countrymen. To the Jews. This is a conversation with them. This is not a corporate conversation. Okay, let's keep going. Theirs, talking about the Jews, is the adoption to sonship, 
Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Who's he talking to? Jews. There's not one qualification that he just gave there that a Gentile qualifies for. This is an absolute conversation focused on Jews. Here we go. Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Who would be sending the argument? Who would be saying, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That means God's breaking his word. If God's doing that, he's, who would be making that argument? Jews. Because Jews would be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were God's chosen people. We, we, were, we were the ones. So if we're not God's chosen people anymore, then God's breaking his word. A Gentile would never offer that argument. It's the argument of a Jew. Okay? So it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And Paul gets back and says, hey guys, you don't get to be, you don't get to be a child of God. You don't get to be a Jew just because you were born one. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's children of the promise who are regarded Abraham's offspring. He says, well, no, 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 no. It's, it's not just because you were born of Abraham that you end up being a Jew. Why? Why is it not just being born of Abraham that makes you a Jew? Because Abraham had another son. And you better remember what his name was? Yeah, Ishmael. Okay? And so he says, whoa, 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 guys. If Ishmael wasn't a child of promise simply because he was born of Abraham, then you need to know that just being born of Abraham doesn't make you a child of promise. You have to be a follower. You have to be a believer. You have to vest your life in this. And that hence the statement that says, not everybody who's a Jew is really a Jew. It's the ones who believe. It's the ones who are faithful that are really the children of God. Okay? In other words, it is, or back to verse 8. In other words, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For it is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time as our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, Paul makes two examples here. He talks about Abraham... Having two sons. And he talks about Isaac having, whoop, having two sons. 
Okay? All right, there we go. <clears throat> now, if you're following custom, if you're following order, which of Abraham's sons were first born? If you were following custom, if you were following order, which of Isaac's sons were first born? Which sons received the promise? Why does Paul use this illustration? Okay. And think about it a second. It's a Jewish illustration. No Gentile knows this story. It's a Jewish illustration. Why does he use... What's the point of this illustration? It broke the rules. You're close. The Gentiles will be the second... uh... Think about it. Think, 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 think. Because remember we told you that Paul, when he writes this, does it like a lawyer. His mind is brilliant. He literally just weaves, weaves, and weaves until there's nowhere to argue with him anymore. And here's what he does in this moment, having a conversation with the Jews who are protesting and saying, no, 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 we're the people of promise. We're the ones in the, in the plan of God. You can't be incorporating these Gentiles into the plan of God now. No, 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 that's our right. And he says to them, whoa, 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 whoa. How did you get to be the Jewish nation? Because if I look back, Abraham had two sons. But the way you got in is that God changed the rules and took the second born. Isaac had two sons. And the only way that you got to be Jews and got to be in the promise is God changed the rules and took the second born. So how do you now, you who were included by God changing the rules, want to argue that God can no longer change the rules and allow the second born in? The Gentiles. And suddenly the Jews are speechless. They've lost because they they have to admit the only way we got in was God changed the rules for us. And then how can we argue that he can't let the Gentile in? By doing exactly the same thing for them. And you got to remember when we're talking about the rules, we're not talking about moral law here. This isn't God breaking anything morally. He's breaking tradition. He's breaking the traditions of the day. And he's saying, well, if God could do that for you, then how can you refuse for God to do that for others? And in this moment, he has caused them to go silent with their arguments. The conversation is not about how people get saved. It's about how God can now bring the church to be the central focus of the world. And Gentiles get to be part of it. Back to the passage. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? I mean, he changed the rules, right? He broke tradition. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. I'm God. I get to do that. I get to make those choices. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. He says, look, guys, 
Remember, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob hadn't even done anything right. It didn't depend on being good or being better, because I know you Jews right now want to say we're better than the Gentiles, but that's not what it depends on. It depends on the decision of God. But on God's mercy, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, uh, remember, we said as we uh, read this passage through the first time, um, that... Often Calvinists take that phrase and they say, you got to remember, you've got to go back to Exodus now. And it says in Exodus, uh, hey, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God sent the plague and the plague, and there was a result, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So it wasn't really Pharaoh having a choice. It was God making him rebel. It was God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Does anybody have a problem with that? So think about this for a second. God commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? So God said, this is what you have to do. But if you believe that God forced Pharaoh's heart to be hard so that he could not obey, then who made Pharaoh sin? God. And I'm just going to say, guys, 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 guys. That's a dangerous interpretation. Because God cannot sin and cannot be tempted by sin. And yet, if you're saying that God is the one responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he could not obey the command of God, then God is responsible for his rebellion. And God would be then responsible for sin. It's a really bad interpretation of what's happening in the passage. So you say, well, well then, you know, how do you interpret the passage? Because Exodus does say very clearly, hey, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, so let me see if I can walk us through that. You and I, at times, use very similar terminology when we're talking. And we aren't necessarily putting moral responsibility to it. So, use this. You're raising a son. And uh, he gets to be 26. And uh, he spends every day on the couch playing Xbox. Uh, the husband, the dad, uh, finally sits down with the son and says, look, I'm all about giving you chances. I'm all about kind of, you know, helping you out. But you're 26. You have to get a job. And you've got to start showing responsibility. You've got to start paying some rent of some sort. You've got to start contributing to the family. That's what you've got to do. Because if you don't do that, you've got to leave the house. The son, in a fit, says, oh yeah, you mean old dad, you, and gets up and packs his bags and leaves the house. Now the wife says to the husband, you kicked him out. You're the one that made him leave. Is that accurate? Sort of. I mean, it is, right? I mean, it is sort of accurate because it's dad who finally said, okay, I'm going to put a line in the sand and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give him a choice, but 
he's going to make a choice. He's not just going to lay on the couch doing nothing. And so I'm going to put him in a place where he has to make a choice. So there's some point part of this where you could say, dad did this, right? I mean, especially if dad, before he even did it, had in his mind and said, I got a pretty good idea what he's going to do. Right? Kid's so lazy, he's just going to go down the street and live at his friend's house. That's what he's going to do until he gets kicked out of there. So there is a way in which you could say, well, I, I, dad, you kicked him out. How would dad respond? It was his choice. See, I didn't kick him out. I simply brought him to a place of decision. And I would have been just as happy for him to decide to get a job and stay. And, and I didn't make that decision for him. I simply made a decision necessary. Does that make sense? And so the dad would say, no, 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 I'm not morally responsible for his dumb decision. I'm just responsible for making him make a decision. Hence, Exodus. When it says, and God hardened his heart. Well, God didn't decide for Pharaoh. He simply put Pharaoh in a place where Pharaoh had to make a decision. And Pharaoh's decision was no. And so you can say, well, if God hadn't put him in a place of having to make a decision, then his heart wouldn't have gotten hard. Well, okay, I guess you're sort of right. But God surely doesn't have moral responsibility for Pharaoh's bad decision. The only person who has responsibility for Pharaoh's hard heart is Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's the one that decided, not God. Does that make sense? Come on, nod again, because you're, you're scaring me. Yes, it makes sense. Okay. So, again, in the passage when it says, and hey, and then God uh, God set up a vessel for destroy. Did God know exactly what Pharaoh was going to decide before he decided it? Yes. Was there any doubt in the mind of God? Was God going, well, he could really mess up my plan if he decides the other way? No. God knew exactly what he was going to decide, but God's knowing did not cause the decision. Pharaoh, in his own right, with absolute self-autonomy, made his own decision. But God's the one that drew the line in the sand. And so you can say, well, God, you're the one that brought it to a head. I mean, you're, you're the one that caused him to harden his heart, because if you had never made him make a decision, he would have never decided. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Verse uh, 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he has mercy, uh, and hardens those he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, O human, to be talking back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me this way? Does not the potter have the same right to make out of the same lump of clay some some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and to make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even to us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, uh, as he says in Hosea. 
So again, this is another part where Calvinists come back in and they say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. See, it's saying there you've got objects of wrath, you've got objects of destruction. And it says, what if, what if God prepared objects of wrath, objects that he was going to end up punishing, objects that would end up, people that would end up eventually going to hell, so that, so that Christians would see the people who were objects of wrath and thank God that they were chosen. Thank God that they were among the elect. And they only know that because they see people who God didn't choose and they're going to hell. Now, guys, I want you to process that for a minute. If that were true, if it says that God chooses or allows some to go to hell so that those of us who are chosen would see them going to hell and go, man, I'm so glad God chose me. That's so cool of God. And I'm just going to suggest to you, that would be really messed up. Here's why. When God talks to us about how to understand how he treats us, he always says, regard me as a what? What's the best illustration of God's relationship to you and me? Father. Okay? It's not a perfect illustration, but God's just saying, look, in human terms, the best way for you to understand the relationship I'm fostering with you is a father to their children, which I know, guys, is a little messed up nowadays because some of us have had some really tough home lives and absent fathers, but it's in the sense of a good father, a perfect father, a caring father. And God says, that's, that's how you're to regard me. That's how all of this is to be seen. So think about this for a minute. If this passage means that God chose some people or allowed some people to go to hell so that the ones that he chose to go to heaven would be that much happier and that much more thankful that they weren't going to hell, it would be like a father with two sons. And one son, he'd get up every morning and beat him. And finally, after being beat for years and years and years, the son says, Dad, why are you beating me? I'm beating you so that your brother will be thankful. And you and I go, that's a lousy father. And that's why that's lousy theology. There's no way our heavenly father beats the other brother so that you and I will be thankful. There's no way that's accurate. Instead, what he's saying is, hey, there are going to be people who choose. There's going to be people who decide And yes, those who discover salvation and have the chance to... I mean, guys, all you have to do is turn on an episode of Jerry Springer to be thankful that Jesus has intruded in your life, right? I mean, that's all you got to do. All you've got to do is take a moment and sincerely watch how people live their lives who are away from God. Take a look at their marriages, take a look at their business lives, take a look at the emptiness of their families to be thankful. And that's what this is describing. It's just simply saying, hey, there are people out there who God allows to live. He doesn't kill them immediately. He doesn't, he allows them to live. He suffers through a, a, he suffers through a very broken world that you and I live in. 
And part of the reason he does that, that's all the passage is saying, is so that you and I, looking at the brokenness of people who don't have God, would be that much more thankful for what God has done for us. Not because he's beating our brother, but because we see the results of our brother's decisions when they reject God and keep him out of their lives. Back to the passage. Verse 24. Even us, whom he called, he also from from the Jews and also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. What is he trying to prove to the Jew when he quotes Hosea? What is it? Very good. Bring the mic down. Run, 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 run. It's good. You're going to do really great. I promise. Whatever your answer is, it's right. Okay. He's talking the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. Yeah. So, so, so I've been thinking about this. He's saying to them, hey, guys, 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 you shouldn't be surprised about this. All the way back in the Old Testament, he told you he was going to do this. He told you he was going to include the Gentiles. Read it again. I will call them my people who aren't my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. He says, guys, he told you all along that this was going to be part of the plan. You think God's changing the plan? He's told you all along this was the plan. This is where we were headed. Verse 28. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So a people that were not his people will now be called children of God. Hey, this is what God has always said was going to happen. Isaiah, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Hey guys, you weren't Israelites because you were born. You were Israelites because you believed. Which means not even everyone who was born in Israel was a child. Because they didn't believe. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth uh, with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the old Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we have uh, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 30, uh, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. So in other words, here's this group of people that for how many centuries did their own thing, lived in darkness, had no place in their hearts for God. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it? A righteousness that's by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. He's saying, are we saying that these people who lived all of their lives in disrespect for God suddenly now get to be in because they've chosen by faith? And, and, are, and are you telling me that us Jews who had the law and kept all these rules all this time missed it? Yes, because you didn't have faith. And matter of fact, look at the phrase he says. Why not? Why isn't that the answer? It is the answer. And his very conclusion, think about this, the very conclusion of chapter 9 is 
God has included the Gentiles in his plans and purposes. It is not a salvation chapter. It's an answer to the Jews about the formation of the church. Yep. Story of the prodigal son where uh, the father is welcoming, welcoming back the, the son that's gone wild. Mm-hmm. And there is, there is some similarity to that. You know, I've been the righteous son. He's been the unrighteous son. We've been the righteous people. Now the unrighteous people get to be part. There is a similarity in the construct of that. So I have a question. Sure. Do the Jews not read beyond the first five books of the Bible? Hmm. So here, you know, and that's a great question. What's happened in Judaism today, and it's, it's hugely unfortunate, is that there's only a small percentage of Jews that you and I would call practicing Jews. And that particular group, we, most of the time you call them Orthodox. Uh, they're the ones that have the sideburns that they don't shave. A lot of times they'll have kind of Hasidic hats that they wear. Uh, those are the practicing Jews. The vast, 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 vast majority of Jews are Jews by birth. So as they would say, well, you know, of course I'm a Jew. But the problem is their faith and their nationalism has become so intertwined, even they cannot tell you the difference. And so although they don't practice Judaism, they're going to tell you they're a Jew. It's like Americans who say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I was born in America. Of course I am. It's a Christian nation, right? So of course I'm a Christian. Uh, this happens a lot in... Um, well, Native Americans. Native Americans, when they're born, immediately take on the customs of Native Americans because they chose it. No, I was born Native American. So that's what I do because that's my national identity. That's my, um, a lot of times that happens in Hispanic culture. I'm Catholic because I'm Hispanic. And of course, all Hispanics are Catholic. And so it becomes a national thing and not a faith thing in their lives. Okay, And so, the vast, vast, vast majority of Jews, back to your question, don't read the Bible at all. Because they were born Jews, they're not practicing Jews. Okay, so, come back. So, what about the rabbis? Yeah, so, when you get to Orthodox Jews, they're going to take their Bible, and they're going to stop at the book of Malachi. So as soon as, as soon as the Old Testament's done, they're done. Which is why when you're talking to somebody who is a practicing Jew, then you want to take them to Old Testament passages that tell us about the Messiah. So Isaiah 53, where it talks about Jesus dying on the cross and being pierced for our transgressions. You take them to passages that speak of the coming Lamb of God. Okay, Because what they believe... In the same way that you and I would look at Mormons and say, hey, your Book of Mormon, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's how a practicing Jew looks at your New Testament. This is, this is a, um, it is a inaccurate add-on that does not have validity. So your New Testament has absolutely nothing, has no regard for them. When you t- it's all Old Testament. Yeah. Um, I have a question. I have two nephews that are Jewish. And when we do discuss this, which is very rarely because we're so different. Sure. They say, well, Sandy, 
That's fine what you believe, but we're still waiting for the Messiah. But we're still waiting for the Messiah, yeah. right? So yeah. So what happens to them? Let's say tomorrow, God, Jesus comes back. So they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I think I already answered my question. <laughs> to as many as believe, to them he gave the right to be the sons of God. You can't reject your Messiah, even if you're doing it with a good heart. You can't reject Messiah and be a Christian. You can't. Everything, everything is determined by what you decide the cross is. And if the cross is just a nice guy dying, then you're in trouble. If the cross is the Son of God paying for your sins, then you have a Messiah. And, and here's what I would say. Here's just what I would say to anyone who's... You don't want to argue. You don't want to argue with Jewish people, but you can lob what I call holy grenades. Okay? Which means you ask, it's better to ask questions that they're probably going to get frustrated with, but after they get done telling you, hey, how dare, then they have to think about your question while they're alone. Okay? And here's some questions I would ask somebody who was a practicing Jew. How do your sins get covered? How do they get covered? Because if you're practicing the Old Testament, it is really, really clear that you are absolutely required on the Day of Atonement to go to the temple and to kill a lamb so that God will wink at your sins for a year. You are required to do that. And you go, well, we don't have a temple because the Arabs... But I don't care. If you're a practicing Jew, then you ought to run the Arabs off the temple mound, rebuild your temple because you're required to make payment for sin. And Israel has not made payment for sin in 2,000 years, ever since Messiah. And you have never made payment for sin. So how are your sins covered? And typically a Jew will say back to you, well, God understands. And and God, it's okay that we don't do it. And my question is, how do you know that? You realize you're basing heaven and hell on hoping God's okay that you disobey what he told you you had to do. And it leaves them absolutely in a perilous spot because there's no good answer for it. How do you go to heaven if God said the way you go to heaven is kill the lamb and you haven't killed a lamb in 2,000 years? It's a tough place. Yeah. Microphone. Oh, hey. Hello. Um, Yeah. Okay. So I was born into Catholicism because I'm Mexican. Sure. And <laughs> so you are right. Okay. Okay. But um, and my, but my mother is still going to Catholic Church, and we have uh, discussions all the time. Where's the delineation? This is the, something that's always bothered me because she does believe that Jesus died for her sins. Yeah. So here's, here's why Catholicism is hard, guys. Because how does a person, how does a person admit they need a savior? What do you have to admit? That I'm a sinner. And there's a second piece. I can't fix it. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. So I need a savior. Okay? So if any person believes that, if any person believes that, I'm a sinner, 
I can't fix sin. Jesus can. You're a Christian. That's what you have to believe. That's what you have to put your faith in. Here's why there's a struggle with the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church sort of, sometimes, teaches that. Okay? But equally with it, the Catholic Church turns around and says, you need to earn your way to heaven. And they have seven sacraments. And you realize what a sacrament is. A sacrament is sacred. It's something that you... You got to wait. Okay. I see you there. A, a sacrament is something you do in order to fix sin. If you get baptized, the belief is you now earn brownie points toward heaven and that somehow those brownie points outweigh some of your sins. It's why you do penance. If you do penance, penance covers some of your sins. It's why you do catechism. Catechism is a sacrament, and the sacrament covers some of your sins. It's why you do communion. And you realize in the Catholic Church, they believe that when you take communion, that as you ingest it, it literally transforms into the literal blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why Catholics are so adamant about taking communion, because they believe it has saving grace as they swallow it. So now you begin to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you believing that you're a sinner, I can't do anything to fix it, and Jesus is my Savior? Or are you believing that membership in the Catholic Church, being married in the Holy Catholic Church, confessing to the priest in the Catholic Church, having catechism in the Catholic Church, being baptized in the Catholic Church, somehow earns heaven? And so what you're going to find within Catholicism is I believe you're going to find legitimate Christians who have truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then you're going to also find a whole bunch of people who've gotten confused by this and are putting their faith in their deeds. And so that's why you've got to sit down with anybody who's in the Catholic faith and say, whoa, 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 whoa. If I take it all away, if I take away baptism, if I take away confession to the priest, if I take away communion, are you still going to heaven? Well, yeah, because I trust in Jesus. Okay, we're all right then. Okay, so that's why Catholicism is so confusing. And honestly, and you know, I don't want to sit here tonight and throw any rocks. I'm just saying to you, it's it's one of the problems is because you have people who are seeking God, and yet because of the confusion of the teaching, may never find God. And it's why you and I have got to be much more clear in our stories. Yeah. Okay. So I had one right here. Okay. Um, so getting back to uh, how how the Jews miss Jesus as Messiah. Um, you know, like, some of the test, Old Testament prophecy was about Christ's first coming, and some of it was about his second coming. Yeah. And so they kind of... Um, they merged the two. Yeah, where he didn't he didn't do all the second coming stuff when he came around the first time, so they kind of... Well, think about what we even talked about on Sunday. Remember we talked about when the millennial reign? Here's Jesus sitting up his throne on earth, and he's ruling over the earth for a thousand years. They mixed that in with the first coming. They were waiting for him to be king. And a matter of fact, remember, uh, uh, they come to at one point and they say, let's make him king. And remember, Jesus slips away. He says, no, 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 that's not why I'm here right now. So there was confusion that way. But again, the part that Jesus and the part that ended up causing rejection is that as Jesus began to say, no, I came to be king of your hearts, not king of your country. They didn't want someone to be king of their hearts. They wanted someone to be a political and economic king. And guys... 
before you get too ornery with them and before you throw too many rocks at them for rejecting Jesus, the truth is, guys, we're getting ready to go to the polls in a couple months, and my guess is tons of Christians will pick somebody who they think will help them economically, and they will pass over their morals. And I'm just going to tell you, then, how do you throw rocks at the Jews for missing Jesus? They wanted their pocketbooks to look good, too. Little little side preaching there, just a little jab. All right. Yep, three of you are clapping. All right. What else? Real quick, we're just about done. One last one. Any? We're good? Yeah, right here. Right here. Okay. Great recap on Catholicism. I was a Catholic for 40 years. Uh, one thing I'd point out, though, is there are a lot of Christians that are Catholics. But they believe that they need an intermediary to have a relationship with Christ. Yeah. And that's a big challenge with a lot of my Catholic friends is they feel like they have to have some type of an intermediary or some, they don't read scripture. And it becomes very, very clear that you don't need an intermediary when you read scripture. So mm-hmm. great recap on that. Other yeah. question I had about was on, uh, for, for Jews and conversations that I had with Jews is they say, they claim there was a lot of false prophets back in the time of Christ and that many people were crucified. I just want you to touch upon that and how you'd answer that question. Because I've had people say to me, well, why would you think Christ was any different than some of these other false prophets? Yeah. Um, the first is the fact that he fulfills all Old Testament prophecy. None of the other false prophets are going to be able to, to do that, even in, even in partiality. Uh, the second is Jesus comes back and says, hey, my, uh, my miracles, the things that I'm doing in front of you, testify that the power of God is working through me. And if you don't believe me for that, believe me for the signs. Believe me for the fact that you've evidenced God's power uh, in me. Um, and then, again, guys, the thing that's most confirming for us is the resurrection. I mean, guys, if the resurrection happened, okay, if it happened, which you know what side of that conversation I'm on. But if the resurrection happens, it becomes the linchpin that says, explain this. Explain any man who is killed physically coming back to life outside of the power of God, doing that. And if it happened, then that is God's seal of approval on Jesus, that he is who he said he is. And here's the part that I, and I know they'd go back, well, maybe someone stole the body, maybe someone did something else. Here's the thing that I still think is just absolutely intriguing. As the disciples first begin to teach the gospel in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was crucified, right? It's where the resurrection was claimed. There was another thing that happened during the period of time, and that was not only did Jesus come back to life, but the Bible says that the graves of many were opened up and hundreds of people were brought back to life and gave testimony. Okay? Now, that's a wild claim. Think about that. Hey, hundreds of people came back to life. Your aunt, who was dead for three years, I mean, she was walking around. and She didn't even smell. It was amazing. It was just a good thing. That's a wild thing about this. This is a wild claim. Okay? That could have easily been verified or falsified, right? Well, no. Who, who came back to life? Well, right there, Edith. Edith came back to life. And over there, that's James. James came back to life. That wild claim, which was a part of and surrounded the resurrection, was out there at the time, could have easily been disproved. And yet, what happened in Jerusalem? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, the very people who killed Jesus, became the first Christians. Explain that if they weren't absolutely convinced in the validity of the resurrection.
The people who were there living at the time, who were in proximity, people who hated Jesus enough to kill him, were the first converts to Christianity after the resurrection. And guys, it's historical fact. I mean, you go back and look, no one denies that Christianity exploded from Jerusalem. Explain that if Jesus is a false prophet. So, there we go. All right, we're out of time. You've got kids that need to be picked up. You've got workers that are already mad at you for being late. All right.